My dear brothers and sisters, it is a joy for me to extend my love to you in this general conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That joy comes from the witness of the Spirit that the love of the Savior reaches out to each of you and to all of Heavenly Father's children. Our Heavenly Father wishes to bless His children spiritually and temporally. He understands each of their needs, their pains, and their hopes. When we offer succor to anyone, the Savior feels it as if we reached out to succor Him. He told us that was true when He described a future moment we all will have when we see Him after our life in this world is complete. A picture in my mind of that day has grown more vivid in the days that I have prayed and fasted to know what to say this morning. The Lord's description of that future interview was given to His disciples, and it describes what we want with all our hearts to be true for us as well. Quote, Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me." Close quote. You and I want that warm welcome from the Savior. But how can we deserve it? There are more hungry, homeless, and lonely children of Heavenly Father than we can possibly reach, and the numbers grow ever farther from our reach. So the Lord has given us something that we can each do. It is a commandment so simple that a child can understand it. It is a commandment with a wonderful promise for those in need and for us. It is the law of the fast. The words in the book of Isaiah are the Lord's description of the commandment and the blessing available to those of us in His Church. Quote, Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, 
and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not." Close quote. So the Lord has given us a simple commandment with a marvelous promise. In the Church today, we are offered the opportunity to fast once a month and give a generous fast offering through our bishop or branch president for the benefit of the poor and the needy. Some of what you give will be used to help those around you, perhaps someone in your own family. The Lord's servants will pray and fast for the revelation to know whom to help and what help to give. That which is not needed to help people in your local church unit will become available to bless other church members across the world who are in need. The commandment to fast for the poor has many blessings attached to it. President Spencer W. Kimball called failing to follow that law a sin of omission with a heavy cost. He wrote, quote, Rich promises are made by the Lord to those who fast and assist the needy. Inspiration and spiritual guidance will come with righteousness and closeness to our Heavenly Father. To omit to do this righteous act of fasting would deprive us of these blessings. Close quote. I received one of those blessings just days ago. Since General Conference falls on a weekend that would normally include the fast and testimony meeting, I fasted and prayed to know how I should still obey the commandment to care for those in need. On a Saturday, still fasting, I woke at 6 in the morning and prayed again. I felt impressed to look at the world news. There I read this report, quote, Tropical Cyclone Pam destroyed many homes as it made a direct hit on Port Vila, the capital of Vaniatu. It killed at least six people in Vaniatu, the first confirmed from one of the most powerful storms ever to make landfall. Hardly a tree stood straight as the cyclone bellowed across the Pacific Island nation. World's Vision, Vision's emergency assessment team planned to view damage after the storm died down. They advised residents to seek shelter in sturdy buildings such as universities and schools. And then they said, the strongest thing they've got is cement churches, said Ingo Meppen from CARE International. Some of them don't have that. It's hard to find a structure that you think would be able to withstand a Category 5 storm, close quote. When I read that, I remembered visiting homes. Little homes on Vaniatu. I could picture in my mind the people huddled in homes, 
being destroyed by winds. And then I remembered the warm welcome to me of the people of Vaniatu. I thought of them and their neighbors fleeing to the safety of our cement chapel. Then I pictured the bishop and the Relief Society president walking among them, giving comfort, blankets, food to eat, and water to drink. I could picture, I could picture the frightened children huddled together. They are so far away from the home where I read that report. And yet I knew that what the Lord would be doing through his servants would be possible only if people were faithful. I knew that made it possible for them to succor those children of Heavenly Father. It was fast offerings given freely by the Lord's disciples who were far away from them but close to the Lord. So I didn't wait for Sunday. I took a fast offering to my bishop that morning. I knew that my offering might be used by the Bishop and Relief Society president to help someone in my neighborhood. My small offering may not be needed near where my family and I live, but the local surplus could reach even as far as Vaniatu. Other storms and tragedies will come across the world to people the Lord loves and whose sorrows He feels. Part of your fast offering and mine this month will be used to help someone somewhere whose relief the Lord will feel as if it were His own. Your fast offering will do more than help feed and clothe bodies. It will heal and change hearts. The fruit of a free will offering may be the desire in the heart of the recipient to reach out to others in need. That happens across the world. It happened in the life of Sister Abe Toure, who lives in Sierra Leone. A civil war began in 1991 there. It ravaged the country for years. Sierra Leone was already one of the poorest countries in the world. During the war, it was unclear who controlled the country. Banks closed. Government offices were shuttered. Police forces were ineffective against rebel forces. And there was chaos, killing, and sorrow. Tens of thousands of people lost their lives, and more than two million people were forced from their homes to vo avoid the slaughter. Even in such times, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints grew. One of the first branches was organized in the city where Sister Toure lived. Her husband was the first branch president. He served as a district president during the Civil War. When guests visit Sister Turi's home now, she loves to show them two treasures from the war, a blue and white striped shirt she got from a bale of used clothing given by members of the Church and a blanket now worn and riddled with holes. She says, quote, This shirt is the first clothing I received. I used to wear it to go to work. It was so good. It made me feel so beautiful. I didn't have other clothes. During the war, this blanket kept us warm, me and my children. When the rebels would come to attack us, this is the only thing I could lay my hands on as we fled to the bush to hide. So we would take the blanket with us. 
it would keep us warm and keep the mosquitoes away from us, close quote. Sister Torrey speaks of her gratitude for a mission president who would make his way into the war-torn country with money in his pocket, those funds from the fast offering donation of someone like you allowed the saints to buy food that most Sierra Leoneans could not buy at a price they could afford. Sister Horace Torre, speaking of those who were generous enough to donate for them to survive, says, quote, when I think of the people who did this, I think they were sent by God. Because ordinary human beings made this kind of gesture for us, close quote. A visitor from the United States sat with Abby not long ago. During his time with her, he found his eyes drawn to a set of scriptures that were on a table. He could tell they were a treasure, well marked with notes in the columns. The pages were worn, some were torn. The cover was detached from the scripture binding. He held the scriptures in his hand and gently turned the pages. As he did, he found a yellow cup copy of a tithing donation slip. He could see that in a country where a dollar was worth its weight in gold, Abi Touré had paid one dollar as her tithing, one dollar to the missionary fund, and one dollar as a fast offering for those who, in her words, were truly poor. The visitor closed Sister Torre's scriptures and thought as he stood with this faithful African mother that he was on sacred ground. Just as the receipt of the blessing of your fast offering and mine can change hearts, so does fasting for the good of another. Even a child can feel it. Many children and some adults may for pers personal reasons find a 24-hour fast difficult. It can be, in the words of Isaiah, felt that the fast has afflicted their soul. Wise parents recognize that possibility and so are careful to follow the counsel of President Joseph F. Smith, quote, better to teach them the principle and let them observe it when they are old enough to choose intelligently, close quote. I saw the blessing in that counsel recently. One of my young grandsons had found a 24-hour fast beyond his powers of endurance, but his wise parents still placed the principle in his heart. One of his school friends recently lost a young cousin to accidental death. My grandson asked his mother on fast day, at about the time he had always felt the fast was too hard to continue, whether it would make his grieving friend feel better if he continued his fast. His question was the confirmation of President Joseph F. Smith's counsel. My grandson had come to the point where he not only understood the principle of the fast, but it had been planted in his heart. He had come to feel that his fasting and prayers would lead to a blessing from God for someone in need. If he leaves the principle often enough, it will bring the wonderful effects in his own life promised by the Lord. He will have the spiritual blessing of power to receive inspiration and greater capacity to resist temptation. We do not know all the reasons why Jesus Christ went into the wilderness to fast and to pray, but we know at least one of the effects. The Savior resisted Satan's temptations 
to misuse His divine power. The brief time we fast every month and the small amount we offer for the poor may give us only a small part of the change in our natures to have more and no more desire to do evil. But there is a great promise, even as we do all that we reasonably can to pray, to fast, and to donate for those in need. Quote, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. I pray that we will claim those great blessings for ourselves and for our families. I bear my witness that Jesus is the living Christ, that in His Church we are invited to help Him as He cares for the poor in His way, and that He promises everlasting blessings will come from our helping Him in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last November, I had the privilege of being invited, along with President Henry B. Eyring and Bishop Gerald Cosey, to attend a colloquium on marriage and family at the Vatican in Rome. In attendance were religious representatives from 14 different faiths, from six of the seven continents, all who had been invited to express their beliefs and what was happening to the family in the world today. Pope Francis opened the first session of the Assembly with this statement, We now live in a culture of temporary, in which more and more people are simply giving up on marriage as a public commitment. This revolution in manners and morals has often flown the battle, the flag of freedom, but in fact, it has brought spiritual and material devastation to countless human beings, especially to the poor and most vulnerable. It is always they who suffer most. In referring to those of the rising generation, he said, It is important that they do not give up on themselves over the poisonous mentality of temporary but rather be revolutionaries with the courage to seek truth and lasting love going on against the common pattern. This must be done. This was followed by three days of presentations and discussions with religious leaders addressing the subject of marriage between a man and a woman. As I listened to the widest imaginable variety of worldwide religious leaders, I heard them agree completely with each other and express support for one another's belief on the sanctity of the institution of marriage and of the importance of families as the basic unit of society. I felt a powerful sense of commonality and unity with them. There were many who saw and expressed this unity, and they did so in a variety of ways. My favorite one was a Muslim scholar from Iran who quoted 
two paragraphs verbatim of our very own Proclamation on the Family. <laughs> During the, the colloquium, I observed that various faiths and denominations and religions are united on marriage and family. They are also united on values and loyalty and commitment, which are naturally associated with family units. It was remarkable for me to see how marriage and family-centered priorities cut across and superseded political and economical and religious differences. When it came to love of spouse, hope and worries and dreams for children, we are all the same. It was marvelous to be in meetings with worldwide presenters as they universally address the feelings of the importance of marriage between a man and a woman. Each of their addresses was followed by testimonies by other religious leaders. President Henry B. Eyring gave the final testimony of the colloquium. He bore a powerful witness to the beauty and commitment and committed marriage and to our belief in the promised blessings of eternal families. President Eyring's testimony was a fitting benediction to these special three days. Now you may be asked if the majority felt that similarity of family, priorities, and beliefs, if all religious faiths and religions essentially agree on what marriage should be, and if they all agreed on the value that should be placed on home and family relationships, then why are we any different? How does The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints distinguish and differentiate itself from the rest of the world? Here is the answer. While it is wonderful to see and feel that we all have such a common with the rest of the world in the regards to families, only we have the eternal perspective of the restored gospel. What that restored gospel brings to a discussion on marriage and family is so large and so re relevant that it cannot be overstated. We make it a subject of eternity. We take the commitment and the sanctity of marriage to a greater level because our belief and understanding that families go back before this earth was and they will go forward into eternities. This doctrine is taught so simply, powerfully, and beautifully by Ruth Gardner's text of a primary song. Families can be together forever. Pause and just think for a moment about primary children all over the world singing these words in their native tongues at the top of their lungs. With enthusiasm and love, a family can invoke. Families can be together forever through Heavenly Father's plan. I always want to be with my own family, for the Lord has shown me how I can. The entire theology of the restoration gospel centers on families 
and on the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe in premortal life, where we all lived as literal spirits. Children of God, our eternal Father, we believe that we were and still are members of His family. We believe that marriage and family ties can continue beyond the grave, that marriage performed by those who have the proper authority in His temples will continue to be valid in the world to come. Our marriage ceremonies eliminate the words, until death do us part, and instead say, for time and for all eternity. We also believe that strong traditional families are not only the basic unit of a stable society, a stable economy, and a stable culture of values, but that they are also the basic unit of eternity and the kingdom and government of God. <clears throat> we believe that the organization and government of heaven will be built around families and extended families. It is because of our belief that marriage and families are eternal that we as a Church want to be leaders and participate in worldwide movements that strengthen them. We know that it is not only those who are actively religious who share common values and priorities of lasting marriages and strong family relationships. A great number of secular people have concluded that a commitment to marriage and a family lifestyle is the most sensible, the most economical, and the happiest way to live. No one has ever come up with a more efficient way to raise the next generation than a household of married parents with children. Why should marriage and family matters everywhere? Public opinions show that marriage is still the ideal and the hope among the majority of every age group. Even among the millennial generation, where we hear so much about cho choosing singleness, personal freedom and cohabitation before marriage, the fact is that strong marriages worldwide still want to have children and to create strong families. Once we are married, and once we have children, the true commonality among all mankind becomes even more element, evident. As family people, no matter where we live or what our religious beliefs may be, we share the many struggles, the same struggles, the same adjustments, and the same hopes and worries for our children. As the New York Times columnist said, David Brooks said, people are not better off when they are given the maximum personal freedom to do what they want. They are better off when they are enshrouded in commitments that transcend personal choice, commitments to family, to God, craft, and country. One problem is so much of the media and entertainment 
that the world shares does not rely on the priorities and values of the majority. For whatever reason, too much of television, movies, music, and Internet present the classic case of the minority masquerading as the majority. Immorality and amorality range from graphic violence to recreational sex is portrayed as the norm and can cause those who have mainstream values to feel that they're out of date of a bygone era. In such, the media and Internet dominate the world. It has never been harder to raise responsible children and keep marriages and families together. Despite what much of the media and entertainment outlets may suggest, however, and despite the very real decline in marriages and family or orientation of some, the solid majority of mankind still believes that marriage should be between one man and one woman. They believe the fidelity within the marriage, and they believe in the marriage vows in sickness and in health till death do us part. We need to remind ourselves once in a while, as we were reminded in Rome, of the wonderful reassurance and comforting fact that marriage and family still have the aspiration and ideal, ideals of most people, that, and that we are not alone in these beliefs. It has never been more of a challenge to find a practical balance between employment, families, and personal needs, as it is in our day. As a Church, we want to assist all that we can to create and support strong marriages and families. That is why the Church is actively participating and provides leadership in various coalitions and ecumenical efforts to strengthen the family. It is why we share our family-focused values in the media and on social media. It is why we share our genealogical and extended family records with all nations. We want our voice to be heard against all of the counter counterfeits and alternate lifestyles that try to place family organizations that God Himself established. We also want our voice to be heard, sustaining the joy and fulfillment that traditional families bring. We must continue to project that voice throughout the world in declaring why marriage and family are so important, why marriage and family really do matter, and why they always will. My brothers and sisters, the restored gospel centers on marriage and families. It is also on marriage and families that we can unite most with other faiths. It is around marriage and families where we find the greatest commonality with the rest of the world. It is around marriage and families that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the greatest opportunity to be a light upon the hill. Let me close by bearing my witness 
and my nine decades on earth fully qualify me to say this, <laughs> that the older I get, the more I realize that family is the center of life. It is the key to eternal happiness. I give my thanks to my wife, to my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren, to all the cousins and in-laws of an extended family who make my life so rich, yes, even eternal. Of this eternal truth, I bear my strongest and most sacred witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last January, seven-year-old sailor Gutzler and her family were flying from Florida to Illinois in a private airplane. Sailor's father was at the controls. Just after nightfall, the aircraft developed mechanical problems and crashed in the, in the pitch-dark hills of Kentucky, upside down in very rough territory. Everyone but Sailor died in the accident. Her wrist, her wrist was broken in the crash. She suffered cuts and scrapes and had lost her shoes. The temperature was 38 degrees Fahrenheit, or 3 degrees Celsius. It was a cold, rainy Kentucky winter's night, and Sailor was wearing only shorts, a T-shirt, and one sock. She cried out for her mother and father, but no one answered. Summoning every ounce of courage, she set off barefoot across the countryside in search of help, wading through creeks and crossing ditches and braving blackberry briars. From the top of one small hill, sailors spotted a light in the distance, about a mile away. Stumbling through the darkness and brush toward that light, she eventually arrived at the home of a kind man she had never met before who sprang to her care. Sailor was safe. She would soon be taken to a hospital and helped on her way to recovery. Sailor survived because she saw a light in the distance and fought her way to it. Notwithstanding the wild countryside, the depth of the tragedy she faced, and the injuries she had sustained. It's hard to imagine how Sailor managed to do what she did that night. But what we do know is that she recognized in the light of that distant house a chance for rescue. There was hope. She took courage in the fact that no matter how bad things were, her rescue would be found in that light. Few of us will ever endure an experience as harrowing as sailors, but all of us will, at some time or another, have to traverse our own spiritual wilderness and undertake our own rugged emotional journeys. In those moments, however dark or seemingly hopeless they may be, if we search for it, there will always be a spiritual light that beckons to us, giving us the hope of rescue and relief. That light shines from the Savior of all mankind, who is, the, who is the light of the world. Perceiving spiritual light is different from seeing physical light. Recognizing the Savior's spiritual light begins with our willingness to believe. God requires that initially we at least desire to believe. If ye will awake and arouse your faculties and exercise a particle of faith, the prophet Alma teaches, Yea, if ye can, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you. 
even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of the Savior's words. Alma's call for us to desire to believe and to give place in our hearts for the Savior's words reminds us that belief and faith require our personal choice and action. We must awake and arouse our faculties. We ask before it is given unto us. We seek before we find. We knock before it is opened unto us. We are then given this promise, quote, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened, end quote. No more impassioned plea for us to believe has come than from the Savior Himself during His earthly ministry when He appealed to His disbelieving listeners. Quote, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. End quote. Every day each of us faces a test. It is the test of our lifetimes. Will we choose to believe in Him and allow the light of His gospel to grow within us? Or will we refuse to believe and insist on traveling alone in the dark? The Savior provides His gospel as a light to guide those who choose to believe in and follow Him. After the crash, Sailor had a choice. She could have chosen to stay by the airplane in the dark, alone and afraid. But there was a long night ahead, and it was just going to get colder. She chose another way. Sailor climbed up a hill, and there she saw a light on the horizon. Gradually, as she made her way through the night toward the light, it grew brighter. Still, there must have been times when she could not see it. Perhaps it went out of view when she was in a ravine or behind trees or bushes. But she pressed on. Whenever she could see the light, Sailor had evidence that she was on the right path. She did not yet know precisely what that light was, but she kept walking towards it based on what she knew, trusting and hoping that she would see it again if she kept moving in the right direction. By so doing, she may have saved her life. Our lives can be like that, too. There may be times when we have been hurt, when we are tired, and when our lives seem, seem dark and cold. There may be times when we cannot see any light on the horizon and we may feel like giving up. If we are willing to believe, if we desire to believe, if we choose to believe, then the Savior's teachings and example will show us the pathway forward. Choose to believe. Just as Sailor had to believe that she would find safety in that distant light, so too we must choose to open our hearts to the divine reality of the Savior, to His eternal light and His healing mercy. Prophets across the ages have encouraged us and even implored us to believe in Christ. Their exhortations re reflect a fundamental fact. God does not force us to believe. Instead, He invites us to believe by sending living prophets and apostles to teach us, by providing scriptures and by beckoning to us through His Spirit. We are the ones who must choose to embrace those spiritual invitations, electing to see with inward eyes the spiritual light with which He calls us. The decision to believe is the most important choice we ever make. It shapes all our other decisions. 
God does not compel us to believe any more than He compels us to keep any commandments, despite His perfect desire to bless us. Yet His call to us to believe in Him, to exercise that particle of faith and to give place for His words, remains in effect today. As the Savior said, quote, I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. End quote. Belief and testimony and faith are not passive principles. They do not just happen to us. Belief is something we choose. We hope for it. We work for it. And we sacrifice for it. We will not accidentally come to believe in the Savior and His gospel any more than we will accidentally pray or pay tithing. We actively choose to believe just like we choose to keep other commandments. Put belief into action. Sailor could not know at first if what she was doing as she pushed her way through the underbrush would actually work. She was lost and injured. It was dark and cold. But she left the crash site and ventured out in hope of rescue, crawling and scraping her way forward until she, until she saw the light in the distance. Once she had seen it, she did her best to move toward it, remembering what she had seen. We likewise must give place for the hope that we will find spiritual light by embracing belief rather than choosing to doubt. Our actions are the evidence of our belief and become the substance of our faith. We are choosing to believe when we pray and when we read the scriptures. We are choosing to believe when we fast, when we keep the Sabbath day holy, and when we worship in the temple. We are choosing to believe when we are baptized and when we partake of the sacrament. We are choosing to believe when we repent and seek divine forgiveness and healing love. Never give up. Sometimes progress in spiritual things can seem slow or intermittent. Sometimes we may feel that we have lost ground, that we have made mistakes, or that our best efforts to find the Savior are not working. If you feel this way, please do not give up ever. Go right on believing in Him and in His gospel and His church. Align your actions with that belief. In those moments when the light of your faith is dimmed, let your hope for the Savior's love and grace found in His gospel and His church. Overcome your doubt. I promise that He stands ready to receive you. Over time, you will come to see that you have made the best choice you could possibly have made. Your courageous decision to believe in Him will bless you immeasurably and forever. The Blessings of Belief I have felt the merciful love of the Savior in my life. I have searched for Him in my own moments of darkness, and He has reached out to me with His healing light. One of the great joys of my life has been traveling with my wife, Kathy, to meet with members of the Church in many corners of the globe. These wonderful encounters have taught me and taught us about God's love for His children. They have shown me the limitless potential for happiness that becomes the blessing of those who choose to follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have learned that believing in Him and in His redemptive power is the true path to peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. 
I testify that Jesus Christ is the source of light and hope for all of us. I pray that we may all choose to believe in Him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Subjects for general conference talks are assigned, not by mortal authority, but by the impressions of the Spirit. Many subjects would address the mortal concerns we all share. But just as Jesus did not teach how to overcome the mortal challenges or political oppression of his day, he usually inspires his modern servants to speak about what we must do to reform our personal lives to prepare us to return to our heavenly home. On this Easter weekend, I have felt impressed to talk about the precious and timeless teachings of one of the parables of Jesus. The parable of the sower is one of a small number of parables reported in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It is also one of an even smaller group of parables Jesus explained to his disciples. The seed that was sown was the word of the kingdom, the word or the word of God, the teachings of the master and his servants. The different soils on which the seeds fell represent different ways in which mortals receive and follow these teachings. Thus, the seed that fell by the wayside have not reached mortal soil where they might possibly grow. They are like teachings that fall upon a heart hardened or unprepared. I will say nothing more of these. My message concerns those of us who have committed to be followers of Christ. What do we do with the Savior's teachings as we live our lives? The parable of the sower warns us of circumstances and attitudes that can keep anyone who has received the seed of the gospel message from bringing forth a goodly harvest. Some seed, quote, fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away." End of quote. Jesus explained that this describes those who, quote, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. But because they have no root in themselves, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended, end of quote. What causes hearers to have no root in themselves? This is the circumstance of new members who are merely converted to the missionaries or to the many attractive characteristics of the Church or to the many great fruits of Church membership. Not being rooted in the Word, when opposition arises, they can be scorched and wither away. But even those raised in the church, long-term members, can slip into a condition where they have no root in themselves. I have known some of these, members without firm and lasting conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If we are not rooted in the teachings of the gospel and regular in its practices, any one of us can develop a stony heart, which is stony ground for spiritual seeds. Spiritual food is necessary for spiritual survival, especially in a world that is moving away from belief in God and the absolutes of right and wrong. In an age dominated by the Internet, which magnifies messages that menace faith, we must increase our exposure to spiritual truth in order to strengthen our faith and stay rooted in the gospel. Young people, if that teaching seems too general, here is a specific example. If the emblems of the sacrament are being passed and you are texting or whispering or playing video games or doing anything else to deny yourself essential spiritual food, you are severing your spiritual roots and moving yourself towards stony ground. You are making yourselves vulnerable to withering away when you encounter tribulation like isolation, intimidation, or ridicule. And that applies to adults also. Another potential destroyer of spiritual roots, accelerated by current technology but not unique to it, is the keyhole view of the gospel or the church. This limited view focuses on a particular doctrine or practice or perceived deficiency in a leader and ignores the grand panorama of the gospel plan and the personal and communal fruits of its harvest. President Gordon B. Hinckley gave a vivid description of one aspect of this keyhole view. He told a BYU audience about political commentators, quote, aflame with indignation, unquote, at a then recent news event. With studied art, they poured out the sour vinegar of invective and anger. Surely, he concluded, this is the age and place of the gifted pickle sucker. <laughs> in contrast, to be securely rooted in the gospel, we must be moderate and measured in criticism and seek always for the broader view of the majestic work of God. Jesus taught that, quote, some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit, end of quote. He explained that these are, quote, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful, end of quote. This is surely a warning to be heeded by all of us. I will speak first of the deceitfulness of riches. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whatever our state of conversion, we are all tempted by this. When attitudes or priorities are fixed on the acquisition, use, or possession of property, we call that materialism. So much has been said and written about materialism that little needs to be added here. 
Those who believe in what has been called the theology of prosperity are suffering from the deceitfulness of riches. The possession of wealth or significant income is not a mark of heavenly favor, and their absence is not evidence of heavenly disfavor. When Jesus told a faithful follower that he could inherit eternal life if he would only give all that he had to the poor, he was not identifying an evil in the possession of riches, but an evil in that follower's attitude toward them. As we are all aware, Jesus praised the Good Samaritan who used the same coinage to serve his fellow man that Jesus used to be, that Judas used to betray him. The root of all evil is not money, but the love of money. The Book of Mormon tells of a time when the Church of God began to fail in its progress because the people of the Church began to set their hearts upon riches and upon the vain things of the world. Whoever has an abundance of material things is in jeopardy of being spiritually sedated by riches and other things of the world. That is a suitable introduction to the next of the Savior's teachings. The most subtle thorns to choke out the effect of the gospel word in our lives are the worldly forces that Jesus called the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. These are too numerous to recite. Some examples will suffice. On one occasion, Jesus rebuked his chief apostle, saying to Peter, Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Savoring the things of men means putting the cares of this world ahead of the things of God in our actions, our priorities, and our thinking. We surrender to the pleasures of this life when we are addicted, which impairs God's precious gift of agency, when we are beguiled by trivial distractions, which draw us away from things of eternal importance, and when we have an entitlement mentality, which impairs the personal growth necessary to qualify us for our eternal destiny. We are overcome by the cares of this life when we are paralyzed by fear of the future, which hinders our going forward in faith, trusting in God and His promises. Twenty-five years ago, my esteemed BYU teacher, Hugh W. Nibley, spoke of the dangers of surrendering to the cares of the world. He was asked in an interview whether world conditions and our duty to spread the gospel made it desirable to seek some way to be accommodating to the world in what we do in the Church. His reply, quote, That's been the whole story of the Church, hasn't it? You have to be willing to offend here. You have to be willing to take the risk. That's exactly where the faith comes in. Our commitment is supposed to be a test. 
It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be impractical in the terms of this world. End of quote. This gospel priority was affirmed on the BYU campus just a few months ago by an esteemed Catholic leader, Charles J. Chapu, the Archbishop of Philadelphia. Speaking of concerns that the LDS and Catholic communities share, such as, quote, about marriage and family, the nature of our sexuality, the sanctity of human life, and the urgency of religious liberty, end of quote, he said this, I want to stress again the importance of really living what we claim to believe. That needs to be a priority, not just in our personal and family lives, but in our church, our political choices, our business dealings, our treatment of the poor. In other words, in everything we do. Here's why that's important, he continued. Learn from the Catholic experience. We Catholics believe that our vocation is to be a leaven in society. But there's a fine line between being leaven in society and being digested by society. End of quote. The Savior's warning against having the cares of this world choke out the Word of God in our lives surely challenges us to keep our priorities fixed, our hearts set on the commandments of God and the leadership of His Church. The Savior's examples could cause us to think of this parable as the parable of the soils. The suitability of the soil depends upon the heart of each one of us who is exposed to the gospel seed. In susceptibility to spiritual things, some hearts are hardened and unprepared. Some hearts are stony from disuse, and some hearts are set upon the things of the world. The parable of the sower ended with the Savior's description of the seed that, quote, fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, Unquote, in various measures. How can we prepare ourselves to be that good ground and to have that good harvest? Jesus explained that, quote, the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience, end of quote. We have the seed of the gospel word. It is up to each of us to set the priorities and to do the things that make our soil good and our harvest plentiful. We must seek to be firmly rooted and converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We achieve this conversion by prayer, by scripture reading, by serving, and by regularly partaking of the sacrament to always have His Spirit to be with us. We must also seek that mighty change of heart that replaces evil desires and selfish concerns with the love of God and the desire to serve Him and His children. I testify of the truth of these things, and I testify of our Savior Jesus Christ, whose teachings point the way and whose Atonement makes it all possible. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
next to the inspiring talks, music, and prayers that always touch our hearts during General Conference. I've been told by many sisters that what they love most is watching the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve as they exit this podium with their eternal companions. And don't we all enjoy hearing the brethren tenderly express their love for them, just as Elder Packer has just done? On another occasion, speaking about his wife Donna, President Boyd K. Packer said, Because of the office I hold, I have a solemn obligation to tell the truth. She's perfect. She is the sunshine of my life, said President Dieter F. Uchtdorf of his wife Harriet. President Henry B. Eyring, referring to his wife Kathleen, said, She is a person who has always made me want to be the very best that I can be. And President Thomas S. Monson, speaking of his beloved Frances, said, She was the love of my life, my trusted confidant, and my closest friend. To say that I miss her does not begin to convey the depth of my feelings. I, too, would like to express my love for my beloved companion, Craig. He is a precious gift to me. Referring to my husband, a cherished and sacred phrase in my patriarchal blessing promises that my life and the lives of my children will be well in his keeping. It is clear to me that Craig is the fulfillment of that promise. Borrowing from the words of Mark Twain, I say that life without Craig would not be life. I love him heart and soul. Today I wish to honor husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, and uncles who know who they are and who are doing their best to fulfill their God-given roles as described in the Family Proclamation, including righteously presiding and providing for and protecting their families. Please know that I am painfully aware that the topics of fatherhood, motherhood, and marriage can be troubling for many. I know that some Church members feel that their homes will never reach what they perceive to be the ideal. Many are hurting because of neglect, abuse, addictions, and incorrect traditions and culture. I do not condone the actions of men or women who have willfully or even ignorantly caused pain, anguish, and despair in their homes. But today I am speaking of something else. I am convinced that a husband is never more attractive to his wife than when he is serving in his God-given roles as a worthy priesthood holder, most importantly in the home. I love and believe these words from President Packer to worthy husbands and fathers. Quote, you have the power of the priesthood directly from the Lord to protect your home. There will be times that all that stands as a shield between your family and the adversary's mischief will be that power. Close quote. Earlier this year, I attended the funeral of an extraordinary, ordinary man, my husband's Uncle Don. One of Uncle Don's sons shared an experience he had had as a small child shortly after his parents had purchased their first home. Because there were five small children to feed and clothe, there was not enough money to fence the yard. Taking seriously one of his divine roles as the protector of his family, Uncle Don drove a few small wooden stakes into the ground, took some string, and tied the string from stake to stake all around the yard. Then he called his small children to him and showed them the stakes and the string and explained to them that if they would stay on the inside of that makeshift fence, they would be safe. One day the visiting teachers watched in disbelief as they approached the house and saw five little children standing obediently at the edge of the string looking longingly at a ball that had bounced beyond their boundaries and out into the street. One little child ran to get their daddy who in response ran and retrieved the ball. 
Later in the funeral, the oldest son tearfully expressed that all he had ever hoped in this life was to be like his beloved father. President Ezra Taft Benson said, quote, Oh, husbands and fathers in Israel, you can do so much for the salvation and exaltation of your families. Remember your sacred calling as a father in Israel, your most important calling in time and eternity, a calling from which you will never be released. You must help create a home where the Spirit of the Lord can abide. Close quote. How applicable those prophetic words are today. It must be difficult at best for covenant men to live in a world that not only demeans their divine roles and responsibilities, but also sends false messages about what it means to be a real man. One false message is, it's all about me. On the other end of the scale is the degrading and mocking messages that husbands and fathers are no longer needed. I plead with you to not listen to Satan's lies. He has forfeited the, that sacred privilege of ever becoming a husband or father. And because he is jealous of those who have the sacred roles he will never fill, he is intent on making all men miserable like unto himself. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. As covenant-keeping women and men, we need to lift each other and help each other become the people the Lord would ha have, have us become. And we need to work together to lift the rising generation and help them reach their divine potential as heirs of eternal life. We could do as Robert D. Hales, Elder Robert D. Hales and his wife Mary have done and follow the proverb, Thee lift me and I lift thee and we'll ascend together. We know from the scriptures that it is not good that man should be alone. That is why our Heavenly Father made and help meet for him. The phrase help meet means a helper suited to, worthy of, or corresponding to him. For example, our two hands are similar to each other, but not exactly the same. In fact, they are exact opposites. But they complement each other and are suited to each other. Working together, they are stronger. In a chapter about families, the Church Handbook contains this statement. The nature of male and female spirits is such that they complete each other. Please note that it does not say compete with each other, but complete each other. We are here to help and lift and rejoice with each other as we try to become our very best selves. Sister Barbara B. Smith wisely taught, quote, There's so much more of happiness to be had when we can rejoice in another's successes and not just in our own. When we seek to complete rather than compete, it's so much easier to cheer each other on. When I was a young mother of several small children at the end of days filled with diapering, dishwashing, and disciplining, no one sang more emphatically the primary song, I'm so glad when Daddy comes home. I was, I'm sad to admit, however, that I was not always cheerful when Craig seemed to bounce through the door after a hard day of work. He always greeted us each with a hug and a kiss and turned many difficult and sometimes disastrous days into delightful daddy times. wish I had been a little less preoccupied with the endless list of to-dos still to be done and had more wisely focused like he did on things that mattered most. I would have stopped more often and enjoyed sacred family time and would have thanked him more often for blessing our lives. Not long ago, a faithful sister in the Church shared with me a deep concern she had been praying about for some time. Her concern was for some of the sisters in her ward. 
She told me how it hurt her heart to observe that they sometimes spoke disrespectfully to their husbands and about their husbands, even in front of their children. She then told me how, as a young woman, she had earnestly desired and prayed to find and marry a worthy priesthood holder and build a happy home with him. She had grown up in a home where her mother had ruled the roost and her father had cowered to her mother's demands in order to keep peace at home. She felt that there was a better way. She had not seen it modeled in the home that she grew up in. But as she prayed fervently for guidance, the Lord blessed her to know how to create a home with her husband where the Spirit would be warmly welcomed. I have been in that home, and I can testify it is a holy place. Sisters and brothers, how often do we intentionally speak kind words to each other? We might test ourselves by asking a few questions. With a little adaptation, these questions could apply to most of us, whether we're married or single, whatever our situation at home might be. Number one, when was the last time I sincerely praised my companion, either alone or in the presence of our children? Number two, when was the last time I thanked, expressed love for, or earnestly pled in faith for him or her in prayer? Number three, when was the last time I stopped myself from saying something I knew could be hurtful? Number four, when was the last time I apologized and humbly asked for forgiveness without adding the words, but if only you had or but if only you hadn't? Number five, when was the last time I chose to be happy rather than demanding to be right? Now, if any of these questions lead you to squirm or feel a little tinge of guilt, remember what Elder David A. Bednar has taught. That guilt is to our spirit what pain is to our body, a warning of danger and a protection from additional damage. I invite each of us to heed Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's heartfelt plea. Quote, Brothers and sisters, in this long eternal quest to be more like our Savior, may we try to be perfect men and women in at least this one way now, by offending not in word or, more positively put, by speaking with a new tongue, the tongue of angels. As I have prepared for this opportunity today, the Spirit has taught me, and I have committed to speak words of kindness more often to my cherished companion and about him, to lift the men in my family and express gratitude for the ways they fulfill their divine and complementary roles, and I have committed to follow the proverb, Thee lift me, and I lift thee, and we'll ascend together. Will you join me in seeking the help of the Holy Ghost to teach us how we can better lift each other in our complementary roles as covenant sons and daughters of our loving Heavenly Parents? I know that through the enabling power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him, we can do it. I pray we will put our trust in Him to help us help each other live happily and eternally as we ascend together. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Many years ago, after World War II, I was attending Weber College. There I met Donna Smith. About that time, I read the two essential ingredients to a successful marriage are a cookie and a kiss. I thought that was pretty good. Balanced. I attended college in the morning then went back to Brigham City to work in my father's garage the afternoon. Donna's last morning class was home economics. 
I sat by her classroom before leaving. The door had a frosted glass window. If I stood close to the glass, she could see my shadow outside. She would slip out with a cookie and a kiss. The rest is history. We were married in the Salt Lake Temple, and that began the great adventure of our lives. Over the years, I have frequently thought an important principle. The end of all activity in the church is to see that a man and a woman with their children are happy at home, sealed together for time and for all eternity. In the beginning, the gods went down to organize man in their own image, in the image of God, to form they him, male and female, to form they them. And the gods said, we will bless them. And the gods said, we will cause them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And so the cycle of human life began on this earth. And Adam knew his wife, and she bare unto him sons and daughters. And they began to multiply and replenish the earth. And the sons and daughters of Adam began to divide two by two in the land. And they also begat sons and daughters. The commandment to multiply and replace the earth has never been rescinded. It is essential to the plan of redemption and is a source of human happiness. Through the righteous exercise of this power, we may come close to our Father in heaven and experience a fullness of joy, even Godhood. The power of procreation is not an incidental part of the plan. It is the plan of happiness. It is the key to happiness. The desire to mate in mankind is constant and very strong. Our happiness is more life, our joy and exaltation are dependent upon how we respond to the persistent, compelling physical desires. And the procreative power of nature in early manhood and womanhood. Very personal feelings occur in a natural way. Unlike any other physical experience, ideal mating begins with romance. The customs, the customs vary. It furnishes all the storybook feelings of excitement and anticipation, even sometimes rejection. There are moonlight and roses, love letters and love songs, and poetry, the holding of hands, and other expressions of affection between the young man and the young woman. The world appears 
to disappear around them, the couple, and they experience a feeling of joy. And if you suppose that the full-blown rapture of young romance, that love, is the sum total of possibilities which spring from the bounds of life. You have not yet lived to see the devotion and the comfort of long-time married love. Married couples are tried by temptation, misunderstanding, financial problems, family crisis, and illness. And all the while, love grows stronger. Mature long has a bliss not even imagined by newlyweds. True love requires reserving and at last in marriage, the sharing of that affection, which unlocks those sacred power in that fountain of life. It means avoiding situations where physical desires might take control. Pure love presupposes that only after a pledge of eternal fidelity, a legal and lawful ceremony, and ideally after his sealing in the temple are those procreative powers released in God's eyes for the full expression of love. It is not to be shared only. It is to be shared solely and only with that one who is your companion forever. When entered into worthy the process combines the most exquisite and exalted physical, emotional, and spiritual feeling associated with the word love. That part of life has no equal, no counterpart in all human experience. It will, when covenants are made and kept, last eternally. For therein are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained, that you may receive honor and glory, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. But romantic love is incomplete, it is a prelude. Love is nourished by the coming of children who spring from that fountain of love entrusted to the couple that marry. Conception, conception takes place in a wedded embrace between husband and wife. A tiny body begins to form after a pattern of the magnificent complexity. A child comes forth in the miracle of birth, created an image of an earthly father and mother. Within his mortal body is a spirit able to feel and perceive spiritual things. Dormant in that mortal body of this child is the power to be an offering in its own image. The spirit and the body are the soul of man and their spiritual and physical laws to obey if we were to be happy. There are elements, laws, 
including laws relating to this power to give life, irrevocably decreed in heaven by the foundation of the world, upon which all blessings are predicated. These are spiritual laws which define the moral standards for mankind. There are covenants which must bind and seal and safeguard and give promise of eternal blessing. Alma admonished his sonship blood. See that ye bride and bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. A bridle is used to guide, to direct, to restrain. Our passion is to be controlled. When lovely used, the power of procreation will bless and will sanctify. Temptations are ever present because the adversary cannot get life. He is jealous toward all who love that supernal power. He and those who follow him were cast out and forfeited their right to a mortal body. He seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. He will tempt if he can to degrade, to corrupt, and if possible, to destroy this gift by which we may, if we are worthy, have eternal increase. If we pollute our fountains of life or lead others to transgress, there will be penalty, exquisite and hard to bear, than all the physical pleasure ever could be worth. Alma told his son Coriander, Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, ye most abominable above all sins, so it will be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. We cannot escape the consequences when we transgress. The only legitimate authorization to express these powers is the procreative power is between husband and wife, a man and a woman who have been legally and lawfully married. Anything other than this violates the commandments of God. Do not yield to the temptation to the adversary, for every debt of transgression must be paid. If thou hast paid the innocent until thou hast paid the other Nowhere is the generosity and mercy of God more manifest than in repentance. Our physical bodies, when harmed, are able to repair sometimes with the help of a physician. If the damage is extensive, however, often a scar will remain as a reminder of the injury. Within our spiritual bodies, it is another matter. Our spirits, when damaged, when we make mistakes, 
commits sin. But unlike the case of our mortal bodies, when the repentance process is complete, no scars remain because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. The promise is, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the sin is forgiven, and I, the Lord, will remember them no more. When we speak of merged in family life, there inevitably comes to mind. What about the exceptions? Some are born without with limitation and cannot beget children. Some innocents have their marriages wrecked because of the infidelity of their spouse. Others do not marry and live in a single worthiness. For now I offer this comment. God is our Father. All the love and generosity manifest in ideal earthly Father is magnified in Him who is the Father and our God. Beyond the capacity of the mortal mind to comprehend, His justice, judgment, or death, His mercy is without limit. To compensate beyond any earthly comparison. If in this life only we have faith and hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Reverend and I use the word temple. I envision a seating room and an honor of the young couple kneeling there. The sacred temple ordinance is much more than a wedding for this marriage can be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And the scriptures declare that we shall merit, inherit throne, kingdom, principalities, and powers and dominions. I see the boy joy that awaits those who accept this affirmed gift and use it worthily. Sister Donaldson and I have been side by side in marriage for nearly 70 years. When it comes to my wife, the mother of our children, I'm without words. The feeling is so deep and the attitude is so powerful that I am left almost without expression. The greatest reward we have received in this life and life to come is our children and our grandchildren. Toward the end of our mortal days, together I am grateful for each moment we I with her side by side and for the promise that the Lord has given that there will be no end. I bear witness that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. It stands, it stands at the head of the church. Through this atonement, the power of, and the power of the priesthood, families which were begun in mortality can be together through this eternity. The uh, atonement, which we can claim, each one of us, 
bears no scars. That means that no matter what we've done or where we've been or how it was, if we truly repent, he has promised that he would atone. And when he atoned, that settles that. There are so many of us who are thrashing around, as it were, with feelings of guilt, not knowing quite how to escape. You escape by accepting the atonement of Christ and all that was that might be heartache can turn to be beauty and love and eternity. I'm so grateful for the blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the power of repropriation, for the power of redemption, for the atonement, the atonement which can wash clean every stain, no matter how difficult or how long or how many times repeated, the atonement can put you free again to move forward cleanly and worthily to pursue that path that you have chosen in life. I bear witness that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that the atonement is not a mad uh, thing that's for the whole church. The atonement is individual. And if you have something that's bothering you, sometimes so long ago you can hardly remember it, put the atonement to work. It will clean it out. And you, like he, will remember your sins no more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.